There's no way we can put rates up in an indebted world like ours without more pain, without more uh, trauma being introduced to the capital market. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Here in mid-year 2023, the stock market's taking a pause after a surprise run that practically no one saw coming back in January. Will the market strength continue during the second half of this year? Or may we have other surprises in store for us? To discuss, we welcome financial advisor Jonathan Wellam back to the program. He's founder and CEO of Rocklink Investment Partners, Wealthion's first endorsed financial advisory partner in Canada. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Adam. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, first of all, I, I hope you're doing well up in Canada. Uh, looks like the sun is shining. Hopefully it's not blocked by smoke from your wildfires. I hope you guys are doing okay firewise. Yeah, I think most of the fires now um, are under control. Uh, so I apologize to our American friends who uh, were inundated with some of our smoke. But uh, uh, the reality is actually in Ontario, where I am just outside of Toronto, we've had a lot of rain and it's been unusually uh, cooler, um, you know, probably about 10 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than normal and lots of rain. So uh, no concerns with fires here anymore. And uh, so we're glad about that. And our forests are growing and uh, no problems up here. So hopefully your air is clear, at least from our perspective. Okay, great. Well, good to hear that. Hopefully it stays that way. Um, all right. Well, Jonathan, look, very happy to have you back on the program here. Um, we've had a lot of really good feedback to your initial appearance a few months back. Um, a lot of our Canadian viewers, very happy to finally have the Canadian perspective uh, represented here on the program, but you're just overall macro and investment expertise, um, highly appreciated by all viewers so far. So I want to give everybody an update in terms of how you see the world from a macro standpoint, and then an update on how you're managing your portfolio. And I know you're, you're much more company specific uh, in your portfolio management. So maybe you can highlight some of the, the companies sort of at the top of your interest list right now. So a lot to go through. But let's kick it off with my general question I like to, to start these discussions with. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to summarize it is, uh, is caution, caution, caution. And so we're being very, very careful in regards to the overall global markets. And there's a lot of pressure we've seen, as we talked about before, and as many of your, um, many of your interviews have, have emphasized, the large backup in interest rates is, is causing concern all the way around. And certainly for us, that is we, you know, we have to adjust to uh, different cost of capital and businesses have to make a lot of adjustments. So um, we're very cautious. When we look around the world, we think that valuations are um, generally fully valued, in some cases overvalued. I mean, we're, we're finding, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, during the course of the hour, opportunities in individual businesses. But overall, the market is not cheap. Interest rates have backed up substantially, and uh, that's putting a lot of pressure on, on consumers. And then when we look around the world, we also see that uh, there's, uh, there's pressure on currencies uh, in many different areas. Um, there's also problems in China. There's problems, you know, in many of the emerging markets as the interest rates have gone up. It puts a lot of pressure on the, their their currencies also, and so there's not a lot of economic growth. And so we want to be careful and we want to be very selective in terms of where we're investing, and we want to just continue to get a better handle on what this all means to us when we've had such a dramatic change in interest rates, and our interest rates going to continue to just edge a little higher. And, uh, and uh, is something going to get broken again, as we saw earlier this year with the banking situation in the U.S.? And uh, so we're, we're just cautious, being very careful, keeping some powder dry and focusing on specific ideas. All right. Um, let me dig into this uh, increase in cost of capital coupled with a slow economic growth environment. Um, so interest rates have increased by what, you know, hundreds of percent. <laughs> I haven't even done the math. Could it even be more than that? I mean, we went from basically almost zero to now five and a quarter, basically, right? In, in the span of a very short period of time, about a year and a half. Um, so that is a dramatic ramping up in the interest rates, which flows into cost of capital, right? Um, I would say if you're taking out a business loan now versus you know, March of last year, 
you're going to pay about twice as much on on that debt. Um, so uh, big change in the cost of capital. When we look at the price of uh, of financial assets uh, versus a year ago, um, yeah, we did have a, a bit of a rough year last year, but a lot of that's been regained here. So you know, we 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 haven't seen nearly a commensurate cooling off in financial asset valuations versus the increase in cost of capital that we've seen so far, right? And, and part of this is because it takes a while to flow through the system. I talk a lot about this channel about the lag effect. We've talked a lot recently about how um, a lot of corporations are still sitting on cheap debt that they took out before the interest rates started. So it's buying them some time. But at some point, that debt's going to mature, they're going to have to refinance. And if interest rates haven't come down, then you know it's really going to it's going to materially impact them, right? So I guess my question is sort of like, um, uh, you talked about the markets being fully valued or maybe being overvalued. When you look through the lens of the cost of capital um, and, and the cost of just doing business and how dramatically that's changed over the past year and a half, do we almost need to have uh, a, a mathematically a bigger correction in financial asset prices than we've had so far? Provided, of course, that economic growth doesn't pick up. Well, we would certainly be in that camp. I mean, so I agree with uh, your comments already. Let me just we'll flesh out a couple of things here. Um, in terms of the cost of capital, it, it clearly has gone up for all companies and companies that have leverage on the balance sheet and a fair bit of debt. And that's you know most companies. I mean, you have technology businesses and some that are that have no debt, so they're cash rich and they're not as impacted as as much in terms of. Uh, the cost of capital and impacting debt. But there's a lot of companies that have significant amount of debts that they're going to continue to be rolling over you know, this year, next year, and so on. And so we have seen some drawback, drawdowns, I should say, in some of the companies. So we have some investments, say, in infrastructure businesses. Well, those are notorious for having uh, high levels of indebtedness. And uh, in those companies that haven't structured it as well as others, and there's been some, then those, those stocks have actually dropped a fair bit. We've seen up in the Canadian market here, um, companies like uh, um, North, um, NPEN PI, which is a, um, a uh, infrastructure company involved in um, large uh, you know, offshore uh, you know, uh, wind, wind, wind assets and solar assets and so forth. But they've, got, they've got large um, assets and they've had to um, you know, raise more capital to pay for some of these projects that they've been committed to. And if you're raising capital in this environment and you, you logged on and said you were going to do this a year ago or a year and a half ago, your costs have changed dramatically. And all of a sudden you see these things, these stocks drop 30, 40%. And so there is pressure on certain areas. Dividend paying stocks also um, are under a certain amount of pressure because people have bought them for the dividend. And usually they have a fair bit of debt on the balance sheet also. You can look at real estate, you know, REITs and things like that. And they've also come under a certain amount of pressure because people say, well, if I can get a 4% dividend, now I can get 4 or 5% actually in short-term treasuries, then I'm going to move my money from treasuries. And so the dividend-paying stocks or stocks that were bought primarily for the dividend and lower growth, those have all come down in value too. So we have seen areas where we're starting to get uh, a, a drop in value of securities as a result of interest rates coming up and the cost of money. But that's going to be, as you say, a lag effect. That's going to continue to, I think, impact the market and put pressure on companies that have uh, relied on a fair bit of debt on the balance sheet, not to mention the consumer, which ultimately has to buy these products and services that the companies are offering. And we're seeing increased pressure on the consumer. And that's why I think some of the retail stocks that are doing better are more the discounters and the ones that are offering the better deals, you know, price sensitivity, value, and uh, things like that. So, no, the cost of capital is something that's very important. When we value businesses, we're always going to discount based upon the cost of capital. And uh, we've put our discount rates up a little bit. I mean, we're usually using high rates anyway, but we've had, uh, in our view, we've put them up a little higher just so we get a bigger margin of safety when we're valuing that cash flow stream and capitalizing that market value and what we're prepared to pay for our companies. So we're getting a little a little cheaper, you know, we're, we're, we're being more, a little more parsimonious in what we're prepared to pay for stocks as interest rates go up. And that's the way we have to look at uh, valuations. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, I agree. And, and from a, from a valuation standpoint, um, you know, I started my career 
a zillion years ago as an investment banking analyst on Wall Street. And it did a lot of, you know, kind of two ways you you value a company, two, two popular ways, right? One is on a multiple of earnings base, right? And that's where the PE ratio come from, comes from. And that's a relatively easy calculation to do. The other one is a discounted cash flow model. And that, you know, I spent a lot of late nights building discounted cash flow models, which is basically where you take a company's financial statements that they report, and then you project them out into the future, right? And so you're basically asking yourself, okay, how much money is this company going to earn every year for the next 10 years or so, right? You project it out. So, okay, it's going to earn all this much. And now I have to discount those future earning streams uh, by some amount for the time value of money, right? A dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow because there's some risk and uncertainty and inflation and just things that make those future dollars worth a little bit less, right? So you have to pick what's called a discount rate uh, to discount that that uh, those future earning streams by. And, and usually what you use is a, a number that's called the weighted average cost of capital or the WAC, right? And so mathematically, as the WAC goes up, as the cost of capital goes up, the value of that future income stream is going to go down the net present value of it because you're discounting it by a higher number, right? So in theory, central banks pull you know, frantic levers to, to vault the interest rate up, dramatically increasing the cost of capital. Valuations of, of stocks should come down because of that dramatically increased change in the cost of capital. Happened a bit last year, but like I said, you know, we've at least on the indice side of things, we've we've regained a lot of that this year. Um, cost of capital hasn't changed here, but but the markets have rebounded pretty substantially. So I'm just curious, you know, as an analyst and a capital manager, do you almost feel like mathematically there's more shoes to drop here, or is there a good explanation for how for why markets are remaining as elevated as they are given the rise in the cost of capital? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's an excellent question. I think from our from our perch, it's difficult to know if there's a, a good reason for that. From our, our perspective, as, as more value investors, we simply look at the values, pump in the numbers, and try to understand the business as much as possible and what the potential of the business is to grow. And if the valuations come out too rich, then we stand down and we don't, we'll build some cash or we'll look for other opportunities. I mean, to me, I haven't been in the business for 33 years now, in my 34th year, and I've seen a lot since 1990, uh, ups and downs, and you know, justifying uh, high price earnings ratios or just, justifying very low uh, free cash flow yields. Eventually, gravity always sets in and it goes mm -hmm. back to certain norms. And so we want to be careful, particularly as we're managing you know, hard-earned assets of our clients. We want to protect that capital. And um, so I, I don't see a justification for companies trading at, you know, one to 2% free cash flow yields, simply because people think they're going to grow 30 and 40% a year for the next 10 years. We, we just simply cannot pay, you know, for stocks like that. Yes, there's an argument for momentum. And some people will play off momentum and then quickly try to get out. But if you're trying to build a position that you want to own for three to five years, you really have to be disciplined in terms of what you're prepared to pay and make adjustments as we go along. So that, you know, you're calling out, you're doing real time adjustments. And so I think the market overall with price earnings ratios that got into the high twenties on the S and P 500 and are down to, you know, whatever low twenties or something um, high teens, those can still come under pressure, partly from valuations, but also partly from a slower growth economy. That's going to have to deal with these interest rates. I mean, you've had some great people on uh, in the last couple of weeks talking too about just the size of government and bureaucracies, this, you know, the fourth turning and all of these things that are, are, are coming down the pipe. And we've just seen a lot of challenges, I think, for the overall economy to grow until we can clean up some of the excesses that are there. So from our perspective, again, we go back to the discipline, stay with the discipline pricing, then we just have to look harder for businesses that we think um, trading at reasonable values and providing those opportunities. And I find it quite interesting that Warren Buffett's sitting on, what is it, $120, $130 billion in cash. Um, and people often laugh at him from time to time, but uh, he always gets the last laugh um, when you look at uh, what he's done over the last uh, 50, 60 years, uh, 70 years of investing. Discipline will pay off. And sometimes 
you know, people want to chase things. And I understand that's a strategy, but if you're a value investor, you don't want to chase, you just got to, you know, you got to really double down on your discipline and just look harder for businesses to invest in. Yeah, and uh, good that you mentioned um, Buffett because um, Buffett's famous for uh, the um, yeah the Buffett indicator, right? Yes. Which basically uh, you know is kind of a finger to the wind, um, almost kind of like a PE ratio for the entire market, right? And uh, that got uh, really distorted um, as we're talking here. I'm just trying to pull it up here and, and get a sense for what the latest uh, value is on the Buffett indicator, but um, uh, it was up at kind of near all-time highs uh, right at the uh, right at the end of 2021. It's corrected a bit, but it still looks like it, it's about 170 percent. And uh, the mean uh, is actually the historic mean going back to like the early 70s. It's actually a little bit below 100 um, percent. So we're still quite in very overvalued territory by that sort of simple but very time-honored metric. Probably does explain a lot why. Buffett's largely sitting on his hands at this point in time. Now, obviously, he's got the issue, too, of having so much money. He His, his investment opportunities are, are more limited because he has to be able to find something really big that he can put that money into. But well, it's a good sign. And you look at with the money he has now at 5% in treasuries, and most of that's in treasuries, as he's pointed out. He's making $8, you know, $8 billion a year just off of that cash, which, uh, again, allows him the, the privilege of just being careful and being prudent um, and stepping in when he sees the opportunity. So, uh, again, we have to, that's the way money is made. If you, if you chase investments and you overpay substantially and you're not really good at getting in and out, which is a very difficult thing to do. In something that we don't profess expertise in, in terms of short-term trading, uh, you overpay and it impacts your long-term returns uh, in a severe way. And so we're, again, just caution people, be careful. You can earn in Canada, United States now, short-term money, um, you're collecting over 5%. And that's not bad for a portion of your portfolio when you're trying to be cautious and looking for greater, you know, better points of entry into the market. So um, again, we'll get more into the specific approach that that you use because I think it's it's instructive for our viewers here to to have a good sense of how you do this. But you know, part of it is the time honored. You make your money when you buy, right? You're you're looking to buy a good value uh, company at a a low valuation, you know, a good opportunity company at a low valuation, and what you're hoping is is over time, the market will realize the full potential of the company, bring that price up. And that's really how you're making your gain. It's almost the arbitrage of saying, hey, this is a great asset that's a little undervalued right now. That, that's true. And in, in our best performing stock this year, I, I think we certainly one of our top three anyway, um, would be Amazon. And so, you know, we're not talking about companies that people don't know very well, but Amazon got hammered last year, really hammered. And it was trading at less than two times revenue. And so there's a stock, again, that, um, you know, we're value investors and we're looking at their revenue, we're looking at the potential free cash flow and a few things. And they had a couple of challenges last year and that stock uh, got cut in half and more than half. And it was down to $88 and we were able to go in and we actually added quite a bit of it. And all of our new clients, we put a full load on um, $88, $90. And uh, that's trading, you know, one close to 130 in, in that range. And so that's the big company where people can get pessimistic and it's amazing how it can become quite volatile, more volatile than, than, you, than you could ever think and provide an opportunity and a window to step in uh, on that business. And so, uh, I mean, Apple, we were able to buy a fair bit of Apple when it got down to 130-ish, 140 or something like that. That's a, and so we, we're holders at this point, we're not adding anymore. But so we're not talking about companies that are insignificant or way off the radar screen. We do have some smaller you know, companies that are off the radar, you know, off most people's radar screen. But um, the volatility in any 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 twelve month period on, on almost all of these major companies is very significant, and there's different entry points at different times that you can step in and just go against the market on a, on a great business. Okay, yeah, and both those examples it sounds like you were buying where sentiment was weakening. I mean, there's still been a lot of positive sentiment on those stocks over the past couple of years because they're part of the Magnificent Seven. But it's not like you were chasing returns, like, oh my gosh, it's gone up 30% this year. We got to jump on this train now that is, you're shaking your head as, as I'm saying this, that that's not the way to go. Um, I, I want to I tie this to an interview that just came out recently with Bill Gross, um, who formerly 
managed um, just a massive portfolio over at PIMCO. Uh, he's been called the Bond King. I think that title's now gone to one or two other people since uh, since Bill held it, but he was sort of the original Bond King. Um, and in his interview, he he said that he's actually bearish right now on both stocks and bonds. And let's take the stock comment first because he he specifically mentioned the equity risk premium, which is basically um, the expected return that you you think you're going to get by owning stocks over bonds. You you want a higher return because there's more risk involved when you're holding equity, right? And he basically said because yields have come up as much as they have, and you just talked about how you know Buffett's getting a really nice fat return just by sitting in cash now. Um, he says that the uh, the difference between earning yields uh, on stocks and bond yields, it's not attractive enough to take on uh, the, the risk of being in equities at this point. He said it's actually at a two-decade low, um, which to him suggests that stocks are just too expensive relative to bonds here. Would you agree? No, I would I would agree with that overall. I think that's a, that's a um, uh, an excellent analysis of valuations that are fairly fairly obvious. I think to most people, and um, that's why we are not as big a big as fans of just buying indexes and actually going into individual businesses and trying to find companies that are trading at better valuations than the overall market averages. So no, I think Bill Gross is uh, exactly right. The differential is really not that large, and uh, people do have to question whether they're getting. Um, paid enough for the extra risk that they're taking in equities. And then in terms of bonds, um, I mean, we've been short and we're not, in terms of bonds, we've been on the short end, the short duration side for quite some time because we're not bond, we're not bond kings or bond gurus. We're it, not it's, it's, sorry to interrupt, I just want to clarify for folks. When you're saying you've been short, you're on the, the short end of the duration curve. You're yes. not necessarily short bonds right now. That, that, exactly right. Yeah, just for clarification, you have to be careful with the, uh, the wording. So we've yeah. stayed on the duration side very short in terms of just buying um, six months to maybe two-year bonds for most of our clients. And we've been doing that now for the last five years. So it's nothing new recently. And part of that is just you were not we're not going to try to make money off little little changes in the yield curve. I mean, there are people that do that and hats off to them and I wish them well. Um, for us, um, you know, we, we're trying to lock in returns for investors. And so we've been we've been on the on the on that short duration side, like short term bonds for some time. And at this point, we're starting to look at going out a little bit longer. But again, I agree with Bill Gross's comment at this point. We're still a little bit nervous about um, the 10-year bonds. Um, will interest rates continue to truck up a little bit further? Are the inflation concerns going to stick around for a longer period of time? And so we're being very careful also. So I would share his sentiment on the bonds. Uh, we're using them strictly as locking in a return, collecting it, knowing our clients know exactly what they're going to earn when we buy the bonds and not really moving out on the yield curve and trying to play the interest rates at this point. I think it's still, from our perspective, where we're not, again, bond investors all of the time and we're looking for conservative returns for our clients, um, it's not worth it at this point because we're still just trying to get a handle on, on government policies and inflation pressures and, and so on. We're, we're, we're pretty frustrated with uh, the response of governments over the last couple of years. I mean, they printed way too much money. They've been, they've, the regulations are crazy. Uh, we're not production oriented. If you want to get out of an inflation problem, we have to uh, unleash the private markets to produce more products and services, not not tamp them down and put them in in, in, in regulatory chains, and uh, continue this you know continue easing easy money. So we're and, and then have an energy transition policy which is putting the cost of energy up and keeping it high. In Canada, it's even worse because we've got a, um, a federal government that's putting carbon taxes on everything, everywhere, and continually putting carbon taxes. So, um, you know, our price of energy uh, continues to go up even when it goes down on the world market because the taxes keep going up. And so things like this, um, you know, continue to put inflation, which puts a lot of pressure on the central banks to continue lifting rates. And so... Um, we're not convinced that we're at the end yet. We think we're getting close, but um, that that in and of itself is going to potentially cause a problem for the consumer. And uh, um, you know, it looks like these guys want to continue going until there's more gets broken. So, all of that to us points: be careful, be cautious, 
buy quality, keep a little powder dry, and be know the companies that you want to buy and at the prices you want to buy them so that we can be opportunistic for our clients. Okay. All right. I, I want to tug for a bit longer on, on this bond part here. Um, I agree with everything you said there. I think Gross would agree with it too. Um, just to add a bit of data points here, um, he, he mentioned that he thinks that fair value for the U.S. 10-year is 4.5% in terms of the, the fair value yield he expects there. And on the day that we're talking, it's at about 4.1%. So it still needs to come up a bit to get to what's fair value in, in Gross's mind. Um, and then he talks about, and this is related to what you just said, um, he talks, talks about uh, the deficit spending that's going on. Um, you know, you, you talked about we flooded the world with, with liquidity during the pandemic. We did. Um, we have, you know, ended a lot of those emergency measures, you know, not all. Right? We, we Here in the States, there's a good amount of spending this year being done through the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed a year plus ago, but is now actually finally dispersing funds. Um, but um, even though we're not passing new uh, new fiscal uh, stimulus, um, we we are in a sense still doing a fair amount of fiscal stimulus because we're running one of the worst deficits we've we've ever run before, both in terms of its absolute number, uh, but certainly in terms of a percent of GDP, right? So um, Gross specifically cites the deficit and saying, hey, that's actually going to push yields higher because we're continuing to borrow uh, to fund that deficit, right? So, um, you know, he, he's got those worries. Um, I guess, let me take a pause there and see if you have any reaction to that, and then I'll continue. I, I mean, I, I think Gross is 100% uh, dead on. Um, the, 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 the deficit in the U.S. is, is massive. It's massive. Um, and you know, that is the most important economy in the world. It's the reserve currency of the world. And so the pressure to putting interest rates up, uh, I think will continue. We saw the bond issue, uh, the bond issuance that went on just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it was so large and we, uh, rates immediately started ticking, ticking up because uh, people are not prepared to, that, that quantity requires lower prices to be able to absorb it into the marketplace. And if if uh, Mr. Powell isn't going to buy it from the Fed um, and it actually has to go into a real market, then yields are going to be pushed up. Um, I mean, in Canada, we had massive money printing through COVID too, but um, or I should say massive deficits. We, we ran deficits that were even worse than the United States as a percentage of our GDP. And the Bank of Canada absorbed all of that. It didn't even go onto the market. So if we're putting this stuff on the market and we're trying to actually raise the capital to pay for these uh, deficits and putting the bonds on the market, yeah, then interest rates are going to be under more pressure to go up, absolutely. And uh, the government spending is completely out of control right around uh, most of the world, not just the Western world, but even over in China now, we've seen problems financially there. And the rates going up uh, are going to have to cause a, a mishap. And uh, I'm not sure what that's gonna be, but um, there's no way we can put rates up in an indebted world like ours without more pain, without more uh, trauma being introduced to the capital markets. That's, that's our view. And so we're just being very careful about it. So I, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, the US is like still about 1.6 trillion last I looked. Um, and who knows if you can even trust some of those numbers, the unfunded liabilities. I mean, doesn't even include the, the growth and the unfunded liabilities that the, the government has also, which are multiples of, uh, of the current amount of debt that's uh, owed 32 trillion plus. So um, these, these are big numbers. And I think that's why um, when you've had these massive increase in interest rates, people should not get complacent. Do not be complacent. Be careful about this. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the inflation is just hurting a lot of people. You, uh, I saw your latest um, update in inter in, uh that you did in terms of the uh, the uh, country singer, uh, the, you know the famous uh, yeah. that song that's going around, and I you can you I can't, cannot agree more with his that person's sentiments, and but that's policy driven. That's all largely been policy driven, and I think people are just fed up with policies that uh, are not uh, supporting a free market and and, um, and discipline in long term capital allocation that makes sense, and so uh, we're going to pay for that. So I, I, long and short of that is. I think the increased pressure on rates for the time being is going to probably stay 
And that's going to be something that uh, we want to take advantage of as, as stock investors. Okay. So let, let's talk about that. Um, thanks. This is getting really interesting, Jonathan. So um, uh, if yields are going to continue going up, and I do want to mark too that, you know, I was talking with people in uh, well, I don't know, a year ago, right? When, when Powell had started rising rates and, and I had a number of people on this channel saying, oh my God, he'll never get above 3%, right? <laughs> you know, like the economy won't be able to take it. The populace won't be able to take it. Everybody be screaming at him to pivot, which many were for a long time. And Powell will never make it past 3%. Well, here we are at five and a half percent and Powell is stuck to his higher for longer guns. Um, the market has been always expecting the Fed to pivot and it's it's the market's always had to be the one to shift its expectations. Oh, I guess I guess Powell's actually committed to this. Okay, now we're going to expect rates. You know, they were expecting the Fed to the market was expecting the Fed to pivot in the first quarter of this year at the beginning of the year, and it's had to keep just you know pushing it back, right? Um, so first, I I, I do want to say that it's been interesting to see how fixated the world has been on the Fed pivot. First, they thought it was going to happen way sooner that Powell could just never get things where they are. And then every quarter, every month, they've been saying, okay, it's going to come soon, come soon. I think the market's now beginning to kind of lose the dream and saying, okay, it's probably going to happen at some point in 2024, right? Um, so for many reasons that we've discussed and Bill Gross is throwing his hat in the ring here saying, I think yields are going to continue going higher um, you know, because of this higher for longer um, uh, policy. Um, I hear you saying, as many do, hey, at some point, because of the lag effect and whatever, we haven't seen the full impact of this. And as the lag effect really begins to arrive in full force, things are going to start breaking. Um, corporations are going to start stumbling under the cost of capital. The consumer is going to start stumbling um, because their own cost of capital has gone up, in many cases, even more dramatically because consumers get charged much higher rates on debt. I think the average credit card uh, APR right now is like 21% record high, right? Um, so we have this, we have this moment that we've got to navigate, which is okay, yields are going to go up as an investor, yields are going to go likely to go up still on bonds. Well, we can play it safe and be on the shorter end of the curve, like you said, and we can just sit in safety and get paid for it. Nothing wrong with that strategy. First time we've been able to do that for a very long time. But if things start breaking, then at some point, the Fed highly likely is going to have to pivot, right? And we can talk about when that's going to be later this year, next year, 2025, whatever, right? But at some point, the Fed is, is going to have to pivot. One, just because they've either killed inflation and they got to bring rates down because they want to get the economy growing again, or to your case, things really start breaking and they have to start doing rescue efforts by bringing the cost of capital down. That's when being out longer on the duration curve in bonds is really attractive because that's where the price appreciation is going to happen. So how are you as a capital manager going to make the decision when it's time to start extending out further in duration on the bond curve? Yeah, great question. So we were talking about this a lot internally and I think let me point out we're not trying to we're not trying to tick the very top. We're trying to be approximately right rather than precisely wrong as the old expression goes in our business. And so when we start to see truly um, some, some pressure coming in on the businesses, um, earnings coming off, uh, not growing as quickly, um, when we start to, there's, there's you know, a few more bankruptcies, things like that, then we'd be prepared to extend the duration. Um, so at that point, I think the, the interest rate probably will come off a little bit. We won't Talk, we won't top, you know, the, the, we won't tick the top and, you know, get the best price necessarily, but uh, we'll be able to move in with some confidence because I think the way down uh, would be quite substantial and we could see rates drop quite a bit. And so there'll be, if we get in on the second or third or even fourth floor and the elevator is going up uh, to 20 floors, that's fine with us. We don't have to be in on the bottom floor and, and get the whole ride. And so we'll just look at the economy, slow down, you know, true slow down the economy, inflation coming off and consumers under more and more pressure and businesses that are consumer consumer discretionary are coming under pressure also. And uh, and then we'll, we'll make some adjustments to uh, our portfolios at that point in time. And um, so we'll just be cautious, careful. And uh, when the evidence starts to come in a significant way, then, then we'll move. 
Okay. Um, and, and let me get your opinion on this because I've been asking it of a number of folks on this channel recently, which is, I think the market has the mindset that, hey, when the Fed pivots, um, then in happy days are here again, right? We go back to the old days of, of you know, QE and ZERP and it's all going to be great, right? And the market narrative is that, yeah, you know, let's, let's, let's have that pivot as soon as we can get it, right? But history shows that when the Fed is forced to pivot, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you think that's probably the more likely version of this, um, where the Fed's going to have to respond to things breaking. Um, every time we've had a big hiking cycle like this, pretty much, it's been followed by a recession. <laughs> and then the Fed is cutting rates into that recession. Um, and uh, and the markets don't perform well for the first couple of quarters because we're kind of in crisis mode at that point in time and the Fed is taking crisis measures and whatnot. So I guess what I'm saying is, is it sounds like there's good historical evidence to be cautious of the mindset that says, oh, pivot means higher asset prices instantaneously. It doesn't. Now, some may respond uh, to the to the news and the development like bonds, right? Because they're highly interest rate sensitive. But okay, rates are coming down. We see a campaign of even lower rates. Great, let's get that priced in, right? Maybe I don't know. You know, things like precious metals might might also benefit from that. Um, but uh, but your general sort of equities are probably not going to be doing that well in that environment. Do you agree, or do you have a different outlook? I would agree with that. Um, I think that uh, the the run up in debt over the last 30, 40 years has been, uh, you know, just unbelievable off the charts. So our, our debt to income ratios, our debt to GDP ratios, all of these ratios are at extreme levels. And that's because we have relied upon every time this is slowed down, the, you know, the central banks come in lower rates, put a little extra money in the system flush, you know, get the get, get things juiced up and away we go again. We've done this so many times now over the last 20, 30 years that I just think that we you know that that system um, and that that strategy is going to be under much more pressure next time around. And certainly we're not betting on that. Um, we've got to do something with the indebtedness. I mean, it's just massive. I mean, uh, again, in the U.S., you go back to the government indebtedness there, 32 trillion. I mean, when when uh, when Donald Trump was running, it was 18, and that seemed high. I mean, that wasn't that many years ago. Back that wasn't that many years ago. So it, debt is growing exponentially, and so that has to stop. It just cannot continue. Um, and uh, I, I just uh, Stan Druckenmiller, the uh, the hedge fund manager. Um, of, you know, reputed and excellent money manager. He recommended a, a book recently, just in the last couple of months, that I picked up called the, uh, the Price of Time by Edward Chancellery. And it's an excellent, excellent read about the history of interest rates, going back many hundreds of years and then taking you up to the, uh, the current situation right up to really just right, right up to last year, actually, because the book has just been, just been published in the last few months. And one of the things that is pointed out historically, which I think is very important for people to go back and look at history and look at what actually happens and transpires, is that these periods of time when you have artificially low interest rates and you have a lot of money printing and you have the central banks stepping in to the free market and uh, causing dislocations and at capital allocation and pricing and all these things that we've been talking about, there's always some pain, a substantial amount of pain that we're going to have to go through uh, to clean up some of this mess. And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm advocate that there's no easy way out of this. We've been taking the easy route for uh, several decades now since Greenspan, um, after Paul Volcker sort of cleaned things up a little bit. And uh, we've been running this, uh, this, this game here for some time. And uh, so we need to be prepared for more pain and a little bit more pressure and be more cautious in terms of how we approach the markets. And just because interest rates are gonna come down, you're right, I think it'll be because of something breaking. I think it'd be pressure. We saw a little bit of that earlier this year. We got an indication of that. We saw yellow transport go down, bankruptcy. We'll see other bankruptcies, I think, hitting, hitting the tape. Um, and so if the Fed's dropping, there's gonna be pressure on consumer spending, on uh, corporate uh, investments. Uh, all of those things are gonna come under pressure. And I think that will you know, provide greater opportunities in the market, but also lower prices. Okay. Um, yeah. Greater opportunities, lower prices. So as an investor, you know, you're, you're basically thinking, okay, better valuations ahead. So, and you mentioned you're, you're still keeping some capital dry. 
you know, you're, you're not fully deployed because you, you think there may be better opportunities to enter at some point here. Um, there's, always, this, there's, always, there's always opportunities, Adam. There's always opportunities. I think that's where that's what we try our best to focus on, but not not trying to be naive that the opportunities, I, I think, I, I don't think they're going to be easy ones. I think we're going to have to really work harder and harder and ferret out more and more opportunities to, uh, to find. Well, and that's, and we're going to get here in just a second, but that's why, uh, you know, so many of the people who come on this channel over the past year and a half have said that, look, active management is going to become much more essential going forward as an investor than it needed to be in the decade leading up to 2021. Um, because there you had all this intervention, which deformed price discovery, and it pushed the value of kind of everything up. So it was it was pretty easy to make money, right? You could be, you, especially on a passive basis, you could just buy the index, you could buy the ETF. And if it dipped, you'd buy more. And, you know, uh, that rising tide just helps you out over time. We may not be able to have those same conditions going forward for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, and therefore, you know, picking the companies that are going to outperform becomes much more important, but also picking the companies that are going to be least damaged by some of the stuff that you're talking about becomes really, really important. Um, quick question for you on um, inflation. So interest rates have you know, been sent so much higher in the pursuit of central banks to tame the inflation that resulted from the pandemic uh, or, or the, the, the policies and some of the systemic breakages that happened during the pandemic. Um, the Fed has made a lot of progress in disinflating um, since last year, right? We went from a high of 9.1% or whatever. We're down at 3.2 right now at the, on the headline CPI. Um, but it did just tick up. It was 3.0 last month in the, or two months ago. Uh, last month, the numbers just came in. It's 3.2. We expected this because of the math of base effects. Um, but if you look at that and you look at where the base effect math is, is likely to go for the next couple of months, and if you look at other indicators that the Fed actually looks at more closely, like core CPI or PCE, um, those are the, the remaining sticky, right? And so this is kind of the looks like we're going to have to deal with the Pareto principle here, where the first 80% of the move was relatively easy, but the second, the remaining 20% is going to have the majority of the effort to get under control. So I guess first question for you is, you know, how, how likely do you think the Fed is going to be in taming inflation? And by taming, I mean getting it down to 2%, which has been the Fed's continuously stated goal through all this. Um, do you think they'll be able to do that before crisis really hits? I guess based from your earlier comments, probably not, or else the Fed wouldn't be intervening. Um, but do you think they're going to get inflation under control here, or or maybe we'd be looking at a a more secularly higher inflation era going forward from here, as some people suggest? Not everyone, but some. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's a to me it's a very tough question to answer, and and not to be evasive, but so much is driven by policy decisions, right? And um, so if we had a, a situation where our governments, uh, Canada, the United States. We're actually focusing on the best interests of consumers and their 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 constituents, and really wanted to drive inflation down. They would be getting themselves out of a lot of these industries. They would be, you know, lowering regulations. They would be making it easier to get more energy pumped and energy costs down. They'd be careful about increasing taxation, um, and so we'd have less less. You know, more, more, more uh, emphasis on producing and on production. Um, and that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing more and more government interference, more and more government trying to, you know, allocate capital into certain industries, uh, which are more expensive. You see the, you know, the green transition is probably the best example of that. And so you've got all sorts of these policies coming in that um, I think are obscuring uh, what's, what's going on and making it more difficult for the Fed in terms of what their, their, their mandate is. And so normally, as you know, and I think as, as many people would realize, we should actually be seeing deflation um, if it wasn't for so much money being put in the system and in uh, the artificial low interest rates and also the, the, the stimulus from the government spending. And we've got so much debt overhanging that normally the pressure would be that prices would come down. So I think the natural inclination would be to tame inflation and prices to come down. 
But it's all these policy decisions that uh, our governments are, are going through that are con continuing to keep the inflation up, increasing frictional, frictional costs, um, supply chain issues. There's more and more money coming out of China. So we're now in deglobalizing, which is increasing costs of manufacturing. Um, the energy costs continue to, uh, to be quite high. Um, we saw policies, in my view, from the Biden administration, which were not wise at all, taking from your um, taking from your reserves, your, your your strategic reserves, in order to get prices down. But that's artificial. It's temporary. It's short term. It's short sighted. You got to be drilling more holes. You have to be getting more oil out of the out of the ground. Same thing here in Canada. I mean, we're one of the most oil rich countries in the world, and we have a federal government that's trying to do everything it can to completely destroy the oil industry in Canada. And so, so part of this in predicting inflation, deflation, what's going to happen, it's, you know, to me, it's the wild card of incredibly incompetent and inept decisions being made at the government levels and all, all sorts of our countries, not just picking on one or two, but just around the world. And so um, I think the Fed and the central banks are, are dealing with all of that, the monetary stimulus, the deficits, the ongoing spending, all of this, which is keeping the pressure on the inflation side. So in the short run, I think inflation is going to be very difficult to tame because of all these policy decisions and the government interfering in the economy and not getting out of the way. Um, in the longer term, though, I think the pressure will be more deflationary because we've got all this debt and we're going to have to get rid of some of it and uh, we cannot afford it. And, um, you know, we've got fun unfunded liabilities, as, as you probably know, that are multiples of what people really understand. Um, is out there. I mean, you're talking, you know, whether it's in the US or Canada, all these promises that governments have made that they've not set aside money for. These are also um, huge liabilities. And uh, so things that we're concerned about. So in the short run, I think more inflation pressure, longer term, medium term, um, I think it'll be more deflation. And uh, we have to be very careful. You had Lacey Hunt on recently. And um, I, I, I mean, he's, I don't know how you could disagree with his analysis. I mean, he's one of the sharpest minds out there. Um, I think what's interfering with, with his analysis is, again, these policy decisions, regulatory um, ineptness. Um, and, and I'll give you one example. In Canada, um, our leader of the opposition party up here, so the, you know, the conservative party, um, he quotes a number, which I, I, I take it as probably being fairly accurate. He says, if you take our Vancouver market, our real estate market, in Vancouver alone, similar in Toronto, the regulatory costs add close to $300,000 for a housing unit to be built in the cities. $300,000, just the regulatory um, the jungle that you have to go through. And if we're not going to clean up the government's involvement in so much of our industries and business and simplify, then um, we're going to have a we're not going to have the kind of production we need to, to take inflation down in, in the short run. But overall, I think we will reach a point where the pressure will be just so large, they're going to break something, and um, we will see a bit of a crisis. And I think uh, that that will be bringing in more deflation. Okay. You know, as you were talking before you mentioned Lacey, I was thinking of the discussion with Lacey, and I was going to bring it up if you didn't, but I, I'm, I'm glad you did. Yes, he, he, he thinks very similarly to you that... Um, once we're sort of through the the, the near-term inflationary uh, spurt, um, then deflation is going to uh, return with a vengeance because of all, all the debt stuff. So two questions for you. Um, one is, um, uh, you know, I talked about this in a recent video where, you know, I, I, have, I have been wrestling with the question of, hey, where's the recession that everybody predicted? in 2023, right? Because uh, it seems so clear to so many, myself included, at the end of, of 2022, that that we were highly likely going to be falling into one for a whole truckload of reasons. And, and we haven't yet, at least, right? And one of the best explanations for that, relatively simple, is, is there's just a lot more liquidity still in the system than we realized. And uh, a big thing that's providing that liquidity is this massive deficit spending that's going on right now um, on the fiscal side by the current administration. And I likened it to you have the Fed and now the banking system uh, pressing really hard on the brakes, uh, the economic brakes, trying to cool off this economy, slow it down. That's what the Fed is trying to do. It's trying to bring demand down to get inflation under control. 
the banking system is tightening lending standards, not necessarily because it wants to help the Fed, but it just it, it, it's got instability and it just doesn't want to take on any more. So it wants to only be doing the best loans it can going forward, right? But both of those things are jamming the economic brakes pretty hard on the monetary and banking side. The challenge is, is that the administration is pushing really hard on the gas pedal right now with all this deficit spending. And so they kind of run counter to each other. You, you, you sort of mentioned this, that we've got these kind of conflicting policies right now. But I got to imagine that the Fed and the other central banks are feeling exasperated to a certain extent of like, hey, come on, guys, like I'm trying to do my job here and get inflation down by slowing this economy down. But here you are on the fiscal side, really stimulating things. So just curious to get your reaction to that. I would assume that that would be the case. I mean, I think that the central banks have been put under tremendous amount of pressure. I don't think that they are as independent as they like to suggest that they are. Hey, I'm that, sorry to interrupt, but just in your answer, if you can address one of the, the dangers of keeping your foot on the economic accelerator from a fiscal side is that you exacerbate inflation, right? So, you know, are the central, are the efforts of the central banks getting stymied by this? And, and maybe it may make the inflation fight last a lot longer than it otherwise would need to. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree 100%. I think that there's no question that's the case. And the, the impact is being felt by the laboring class and those who don't have as many as much money in assets and are being you know earning an hourly wage and so the inflation that we've seen over the last um say year and a half or so which has put food prices up all the things that you need food pricing housing prices food shelter yeah cars I mean, the, the pinch on these folks is unbelievable um and in canada um, which would be similar to the states, although uh, as we've talked about before, our mortgages come up on a much more regular basis because generally the longest period that you can lock in your rates is five years. And there's quite a few people with adjustable and some do a year, three years and so on. But what it means is our rates, our, 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 our um, mortgages are coming up at a faster pace. And there isn't a day that goes by, you don't read in, read the newspaper. Someone had a mortgage of say $2,600 and they have this beautiful home that they purchased, you know, three years ago in the middle of COVID and prices, you know, interest rates are rock bottom. Now they're getting repriced literally at twice the mortgage payment per month. Yeah. And so I'm glad you brought this up. I was going to go there. So how are people dealing with it? Like well, some of them are selling, they're having to sell. So we are seeing some prices come off. And um, some of them are, they're working uh, night and day to keep, just to keep the roof over their head. But it means that all these other discretionary items are going to come under pressure. Uh, food prices are up. Um, and so I think, again, there's going to be all the things that matter. And as I said, in Canada, energy costs didn't even go down very much because they, they, our, our prime minister put uh, more carbon taxes on, on uh, energy, even when the price did go down. And so this is going to, this is hurting a lot of people and the pain is only going to get worse in the next little while. And so that's why I think, again, we want to be uh, very careful and cautious. And I think that, um, no, the central banks are probably very frustrated because they're trying to do, uh, you know, to align, you know, to get back to their, their focus of 2% interest and stability in the labor markets and so forth, which hasn't been as big an issue. Um, but at the same time, it's very difficult when you've got governments that are committed to spending money and more money and more money and more money and handing it out. And, um, and uh, so uh, we see this tension and uh, it's going to have to get resolved at some point, but it might be forced upon us because it doesn't look like uh, the adults are actually running things at this point in time and making these prudent decisions that they should be. Yeah. And, and. All right. Well, look, um, I, 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 I'm very unfairly, I'm not going to be able to leave you very much time to to talk about your investing approach and and dive into specific companies, which I'd hope to. But Jonathan, you're Wealthion's endorsed financial advisor there in Canada, so we will have you back on this program regularly. So we'll we'll, we'll we will do that. We'll do it on your next appearance. But the reason why we didn't do it is because we we tapped into this really rich and I think very important vein here. Um, so. Uh, you know, let, let me let me try to put a bow on this topic here, which is you're you're clearly not super optimistic about where things are going kind of on the macro sense. Right. Economic growth is sluggish and not likely to, to get much better. We've got policies that we can argue that maybe aren't 
the right policies for the time. And we have conflicting policies, as we just talked about. So there's kind of this big mess going on right now. The average person's getting increasingly squeezed, as you just shared you know, with us. And, and our economies, US and Canada, are still majority-driven consumer spending economies. So as goes the consumer, so goes our economic destiny. And as the consumer gets squeezed, well, that weak economic growth we're seeing is probably only likely going to get weaker, right? So um, there, it's a pretty grim outlook. Um, let me ask you this, because you 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 said earlier, and and I, this is not something that's going to resolve in the next couple of months or quarters. We're now talking years, maybe decades. You said, you know, there's just too much debt in the system that's growing too fast. It's growing exponentially, right? Um, the faster that that debt grows exponentially, the more that the debt service cost grows exponentially. We're already having issues. Well, we're, we can't balance our own books here in the U.S. We're running this massive deficit, and, and a, a large and growing part of that deficit now is just interest on the national debt, which just crossed a trillion dollars annually for the first time, right? So um, when you you talked about the the um, Chancery's book, the, the Price of Time, where you said, look, you know, history is full of examples where the debt kind of got out of control. There's really only two ways that you can deal with it. Um, you, you have to default on the unserviceable debt. And there's two ways to do that. One is you do not pay it. And actually, we're seeing some of that go on right now in China with some big companies that relate to the, the banking, the shadow banking system and the real estate market there. I wanted to get into those with you. I won't be able to. We'll just have to mark that for our next conversation. Um, but you can literally just stop paying it and default that way. Um, or you can def you can default it on it by basically sacrificing your currency. You just print up whatever currency you need to service the debts. And yet, yes, you're paying the debts in a nominal sense, but you're paying it with vastly debased currency. And of course, that has massive destructive effects for everybody else too. And neither way is pain-free, right? You know, if you become a nation that that defaults on your debts, there's a lot of bad consequences that come with that. But if you become a nation that that just prints to infinity to service your debts, there's really bad consequences there too. Do you have a particular gut feel as to which of those two ways this will resolve? Or do you see a third way that I haven't seen? No, unfortunately, I don't think there is a third way. It's, uh, there's no- I'm sorry to interrupt. There is a third way, which is to dramatically increase your economic growth sustainably. But I just don't see that happening. <laughs> No, and we've gotten to the point, even if you, and I think we should always try the, th that the third way as you have uh, as you've characterized, and that is to be financially prudent and to drive economic growth and, um, and to unleash the power of a free market and be properly regulated, but allow people freedom to make economic decisions um, and unleash tremendous amount of growth and take advantage of the, the wealth in, in the Earth's resources. Having said all of that, um, even with the level of debt we have now, that would be pretty tricky to even to, to bring equilibrium to that with the aging population, the demographics and the social welfare systems that we have put into our economies that are not sustainable. So there's a whole, that's a whole sort of other issue, but you're, you're right. We should, we should always be trying to grow the economy, expand it, increase people's standard of living, raise people up, give them as many opportunities as possible. But I think to answer your specific question, my, my guess is it goes back to the currency issue and we lose tremendous currency uh, purchasing power. That's typically what happens when you look at the, uh, the price of time and you look at history. Um, people lose, uh, you know, you have, you, you'll have an unusual period of inflation that will make, it, make some of that adjustment for us, whether we like it or not. And um, I suspect that'll be the case. That's why, it, go back to our investing, we do have some precious metals and we do have assets. We're trying to buy in businesses also that are hard assets businesses that you know can sustain repricing if you will better than other companies and i think that's part of the economic strategy investment strategy that investors should be focusing on how do i protect my purchasing power if it becomes quite unhinged for a period of time all right um unfair for me to ask you this but in the next two minutes uh <laughs> is there anything that you want to say right now about your current portfolio strategy any particular companies that you think are worthy of notice or just decisions that you guys are making, positions you're taking, et cetera, uh, at Rocklink that you think the viewers should know about? I think a couple of things, just, just sort of ending this uh, and putting the bow on it, as you like to say, 
that um, although we see many challenges, that does not mean there are not opportunities. And so be very careful of that. So although I have an, you know, we have an outlook where we're, we're cautious and, and we see lots of, uh, lots of uh, sort of, you know, storm, storm clouds on the horizon, that does not mean we hide. It does not mean we don't try to find opportunities. So what we're trying to do is look at some of those companies for a couple, a couple areas very quickly. Um, again, we mentioned on the last time we talked, I think some of the precious metals areas, um, some of these stocks have not done much for some time. Um, gold, for example, is not trading that far off its high. It's well into the 1900s. It could easily spike higher. Um, and same thing with silver. And uh, again, we buy some of the royalty companies, which are much more predictable cash flow businesses. We've looked at all their quarterly reports just over the last couple of days in the last week or two. Excellent, doing well, continue to increase cash flow. Businesses are strong and they'd be even more robust if there's currency issues or problems. We're also looking at some of the companies that have that um, that have come off because they have a, a cost of capital issue and they've been put under some pressure. So some of the infrastructure companies, as rates start to you know settle and not go too far higher, some of those companies can be excellent buys, especially if the management have great balance sheets and access to funds. Um, we own a couple of the Brookfield companies up here. Uh, they're based in Canada, but they're I mean, they're global powerhouses, and uh, some of those companies I think are trading at very attractive prices. They have tremendous long-term financing in place. And businesses like that can profit from distress in their industry because there'll be other companies with weaker balance sheets and they'll be able to take out assets at better prices. So things like that, that's what we're focusing on. Um, areas that are under stress, but then buying companies that are better positioned, better managed. Um, and of course, in technology, there's always uh, interesting opportunities there. And uh, we own some of the uh, you know companies, some of the software companies like Roper, uh, which is we think is a great company. Again, no debt, no net debt, and um, and uh, you know paying lots of free cash flow. Um, you can't really get rid of these people. Uh, you need them in your business. Software companies are very high margin businesses, great cash flow vehicles, things like that. So, um, just looking for selective opportunities, and wherever there's pressure, then jumping in and taking advantage advantage of that. So there's always opportunities. I really want to make sure again all the listeners hear that. It's just that. We want to be careful and um, and not be caught off guard or, or, or um, you know sidetracked by uh, some of the, some of the challenges out there. Keep keep our focus on the uh, on the on the businesses on the playing field. As as, as Buffett says, um, don't focus on the score on the score um, of, of the game up at the uh, up up where they have the uh, the score of the game. Focus on the playing field, and if you focus on the playing field, the score will work out just fine over time. All right. Very well said. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap things up here. Um, Jonathan, you've done a great job. It's been really fascinating conversation. I think a very important one. Thanks for going through it with me. Um, I think you've done a very good job of explaining for people um, how a competent financial advisor is thinking given the, you know, highly uncertain um, and kind of murky outlook ahead from here. Um, and I'll just reiterate, as I always do in this program, that we think that the vast majority of people, uh, it, in general, but certainly given the current environments, should be working um, under the guidance of a good seasoned professional financial advisor who can both, um, you know, build a personalized portfolio strategy for them, you know, given the, the, the market situation, given the person's unique uh, financial condition, given their personal risk tolerance, you know, their life goals, all that type of stuff. Uh, but not just put the strategy together, but actually execute it for them while keeping the client very well informed along the way. And obviously, first thing you need to find there is a is a good financial advisor who takes into account all the issues that we talked about here, Jonathan. As you know, you know there aren't that many of them, right? The vast majority of the industry is a bunch of guys that kind of just follow the easy playbook, you know, from 2009 onwards, and just hey, just be along the market all the time, don't sweat it. Market will always take care of you, right? This very well may not be the right opportunity for that type of mindset and kind of lack, honestly, lack of expertise from my, my point of view. So anyways, if you've got an advisor who's doing that for you, great, stick with them. They definitely are rare and, and you know worth their weight in gold. Um, but if you don't, or if you'd like a second opinion from one, maybe you live in Canada and you'd like to talk to Jonathan and his team there at Rocklink, well, then consider scheduling a free consultation with one of the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses. To do that, just fill out the short form at Wealthion.com. Only takes a couple of seconds, totally free, 
no commitment to work with these guys, just a public service they offer to help as many people as possible position prudently today in advance of what might be coming. Um, folks, if you've enjoyed this conversation with Jonathan, would like to see him on the program more in the future, please do me a favor, voice your support for that by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. Want to have you back on the channel again with us soon. Thank you very much, Adam. And I just want to say to the uh, the listeners, uh, we've, we have, we've had the privilege of talking to a, quite a few wealthy on uh, listeners and uh, we enjoy it. We love them and uh, contact us anytime. And I'm more than glad to, to, to help in any way we can. As I say, no pressure and uh, we can give you a good analysis of your portfolios and we certainly welcome the calls. Thanks, Jonathan. And look, I, I've heard a lot of good feedback from the Canadian viewers that have talked with you guys. So this partnership's been off to a great start. So glad we were able to get it going this year. Thanks so much for the partnership and everyone else. Thanks so much for watching.